Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, June 22nd, 2020. On the show today, I visit a theme park, and then I walk through a parking garage, plus listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim tells us the history of Aunt Jemima in Disneyland. Let's get started by bringing in the man who refers to fondue as drinking cheese. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I am not fond of fondue, Len. It's largely a gravity-associated issue that whenever I try to experience fondue, whatever I'm holding goes immediately to the center of my shirt. (laughs) Exactly. So it's just one of those things where I have this wardrobe bespattered with fondue, you know, chocolate (laughs) fondue, cheese fondue. It just doesn't work for me, Len. Grilled cheese, even then, you know, melted cheese just flies to my body for for some (laughs) strength. The waiter can look at your shirt and know what you had. That's I see right. You had that's the, right. the brie, the camembert, <laughs> and then the chocolate. There Sorry. we go. Yes, yeah. very good, very good. The terrible <laughs> to have shirts that are relief maps. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Jim, nine weeks in a row with a record number of Bandcamp subscribers. Thank you all very much. And thanks to new subscribers, Doc A, Barry F, and Ducky D. And the longtime subscribers, The Traveling Sideberries, I love their album, Sky Blue, and Wings 3496. Jim, these folks are currently working as the foster parents for all of the dinosaurs in the Animal Kingdom ride dinosaur while the park is closed. Apparently, to foster a dinosaur, you need to be good with animals, have access to an unusually large amount of vegetation for the Styracosaurs, and a homeowners association whose rules don't specifically prohibit ancient reptiles. True story, Jim. Oof. Okay. <laughs> you got to read the fine print. You, I mean, if there's anything we've learned in this show, Jim, it's you've got to read the fine print. No, definitely. It just sort of seen so many people out walking with their dogs with that tiny blue bag. And it's just like, I think the giveaway would be, you know, people out with their stegosaurus and, and the giant leaf bag. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and a shovel. It's just, it's just the dump truck beeping as they, as they back we go. up, right? There we go. All right, Jim, let's do, uh, let's do the news real quick. By the way, Jim, we're recording this uh, Thursday. Uh, in the morning before noon, I am told by some sources, perhaps maybe there might be some news dropping later on today. Uh, if that's the case, we'll do a quick update show in the meantime between uh, now and then. Okay. All right, folks. In the news, I went to Universal Studios, Jim, mm-hmm. uh, this past weekend. And let me tell you, it was glorious. Really? So I, yes, absolutely fabulous. Mm-hmm. So I um, got there around 7.30. I was going to purchase an annual pass. Mm-hmm. I was parking space number two in Kong. Wow. Okay. Super convenient. Yeah. Not, not, not a big crowd, right? Not a big crowd. I was about to say, parked right next to Kong, right? It's, it's a big <laughs> SUV, isn't it? They're gonna... <laughs> I, uh, so I, I parked in the parking garage mm-hmm. and, you know, I mean, parking, parking space number two is close to everything. Mm-hmm. But I get out and I've, you know, I, I've never parked that close before. So I had to ask one of the parking attendants, where the elevator was to go up to the third floor, you know, where the, um, where the security check was. And he looked at me and he looked over to his right where the elevator was. And he looked back at me. I'm like, yeah, I got it. <laughs> I got it. It's cool. <laughs> uh, okay. So much for visual aids. Okay. Moving on. There we go. You know. So I went through the, uh, yeah, they do a temperature check when you get in and they, uh, for me, they check, they checked both your forehead and uh, your ear, I mm-hmm. guess those are the two places to check. Past that, super simple. Then regular uh, security screening, just like normal. It was absolutely fine. Uh, walking through City Walk, everybody had their masks on. And this was true, by the way, all throughout the day in the in the parks that I visited. Uh, everybody 
had their masks on. Very nearly 100% compliance. The only time you see people would see people without masks on were maybe kids mm-hmm. as they were walking between attractions, mm-hmm. like you know, out in the open on the streets and stuff. And even then, you're so far away from other people that it looked like it was fine. So that was great. 100% mask compliance. The other mm-hmm. thing that I noticed was Universal's doing a great job on maintaining social distancing, mm-hmm. both inside and outside the rides. So outside the rides, they've got stickers on the ground, which you guys have seen before, right? Mm-hmm. Six feet apart um, for groups. But if you go inside the rides, and so for example, the first ride I went on was Gringotts. When you're inside Gringotts, the stickers are about 10 feet apart because they know if you're a group of you know six or eight or whatever, you're not going to all be able to stand on that little sticker. So they give you a little bit of extra room. But we measured um, with a tape measure mm-hmm. the the distance between them, and they're about ten feet. So that made me feel really safe. I, I felt great about that. The other thing, Jim, was I rode Gringotts a few times, and I rode Mummy a few times, and mm-hmm. they're both set up the same way with the ten foot things. But you know how, Jim, these indoor queue part of these rides are set up to handle hundreds or thousands of people who are just standing in the Florida sun and now their hot, sweaty bodies are indoors. So the air conditioning systems on these rides are massive, right? Mm-hmm. But now when you've only got like 100 people in the building, Jim, it's, it's like it's like the, the Antarctica base station in there. It is so unbelievably cold. Like I rode, by the second time I rode Mummy, mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? If I, if I had to do this again, I, I might wear pants. <laughs> and it was 93 degrees outside, Jim. <laughs> but just inside that ride, I'm like, you know, I, a light sweater might not be a bad idea here. It was um, great. I loved it. Has anybody checked in from SeaWorld? Don't they have that wild Arctic attraction, which actually goes... I, I think the penguins are actually living at Universal during the <laughs> off-season. There we go. I, okay. I'm not sure here. Okay. Um, the other thing that was great, and this was my favorite part of the entire weekend. So, you know, I'm not a huge Harry Potter fan, mm-hmm. but I'm on Gringotts. And I have my own row, right? Because it's the way that they're doing it is, I remember the Gringotts ride vehicles are rows of three, two rows of three per ride vehicle. So row one and row three are populated and then four and six are populated. So row two and row five are, are not. And because I was a group of one, I, was, I had the entire front row to myself. And I got on the ride, you know, and I'm fiddling with the three glasses mm-hmm. and everything. And, you know, it, obviously it's been, a, it's been a strange sort of day because of everything that's, that's going on, right? I'm wearing the masks and mm-hmm. there's the distancing and everything. But Jim, I got to tell you, man, I got on that ride and it started and the effects kicked in. And for a brief minute, I was like, I forgot about everything in the outside world. And I was mm-hmm. just on a ride and I was just enjoying the effects. And it was fabulous. Like the best thing I've experienced in months. It was great to be on a theme park ride. And I think... That's the thing that I want to communicate to people. Like for a brief moment, everything else faded away. And I was just somewhere in the bank vaults of Gringotts, all, you know, with all the immersive effects going on with all the audio. It was a great ride. It was like one of the best theme park ride experiences I've ever had. Just being there in the moment. Very cool. Holy cow. Yeah. Super, super happy with that. And then, of course, because it was like by this time 830 and I was hungry, um, we went to Leaky Cauldron, Mm -hmm. which is doing it's all mobile order now. And here's the one thing that I would I would tell our listeners. If you're going to mobile order and this is probably going to be true for Disney, do it before you go into the restaurant because Universal is using GPS location to figure out whether you're in the park. Mm hmm. 
But once you're in Leaky Cauldron, you're indoors and you can't, your phone can't see the satellites. So it told me over and over again, hey, we, you have to be in Universal Studios mm -hmm. to order at Leaky Cauldron. And I'm telling the app, like, I could not be more in <laughs> Universal Studios. So what they do in this case, actually, is they mm -hmm. uh, you, you bring an attendant over and they'll, they'll walk you up to a register, socially mm -hmm. distance you, and then you can order. And it was fine. And that's okay. what happened. Um, mm -hmm. That was great. And then we watched afterwards after we left. I was with my sister, Christina, at that point, and mm -hmm. she turned around and wanted to make sure that they actually wiped everything down. And they wiped everything down, tables, chairs, backs of chairs, sides of tables. Everything got wiped down with some sort of disinfectant and, uh, and, and racks. So they're definitely, uh, they're definitely sanitizing things as, okay. you, uh, as you eat. So that was great. Mm -hmm. It was a great time at Universal Studios. Everything looked like it was operating as normal as it could be. All the team members were great. I'm going to go back this week and uh, and watch the new Born uh, Born show that's over uh, where it took the place of Terminator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's all. And great then, news. Uh, wow. Yeah, I was really happy to see uh, to see how it that was all working. Mm -hmm. And then uh, last night I went to Disney Springs for the first time mm -hmm. and I ate at Morimoto, which was fabulous. Again, they're socially distancing everything. Mm -hmm. You're wearing masks anytime you're not at the table. It wasn't especially crowded. I would mm -hmm. say that like you know I, I popped into. Um, Boathouse, to SDK, to Weinberger, just a few places to see how they were doing. I mean, they were about, I would say, tw and this was like 5.30, so it was still a little bit early. But it was about 25, maybe 33% full. The place that was doing the business was mm -hmm. homecoming. I mean, they had a line. They had people crowded around. Not crowded, but, you know, they had people around the entrance waiting to get in. Mm -hmm. So homecoming looks like uh, uh, everyone was very happy to have that reopening. And that's just this week that that reopened, right? Or yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was actually it was the day I was there yesterday. It was Wednesday. Oh, okay, cool, so, cool. Yeah, but looked really good. Um, there's a new octopus appetizer over at Marmoto. It was delicious. Yeah, really good. So super fantastic there. I love this news. Also, Jim, did you see the uh, the rumor about which NBA teams were getting which Disney World hotels? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to walk folk, folks through this because? You're going to do your New York joke, right? <laughs> well, that, uh, I think we did the New York joke on the uh, on the last show. There we yeah, go. The, uh, the, mm -hmm. the Knicks end up at Fort Wilderness, right? There we go. Yeah, in a tent. So here's the uh, here's where uh, here's where they ended up. So the top tier of NBA teams are staying at the new Grand Destino Tower at Coronado Springs. The second tier teams are staying at Disney's flagship resort, the Grand Floridian. And the third tier teams are at the Yacht Club. So I was working with a, a friend mm -hmm. in uh, the media, major publication, won't mention which one yet. But he, the question he had for me was, why these hotels and why in this order? Mm -hmm. Like, why was Grand Destino above the Grand Floridian if the Grand Floridian is Disney's flagship hotel? Mm -hmm. Which is a great question. And I think my theory was that it came down to the bathrooms at Grand Destino mm -hmm. because they have walk-in showers with rainforest shower heads, which are great for tall people. Okay. Yeah, that works. And, and I think the better showers are a benefit. Also, mm -hmm. there's the Kronos Lounge at Grand Destino, which is, I think, you know, for money, for the, for the dollars spent, the best club-level lounge in Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. And also, Grand Destino is super close to Wide World of Sports. Not that Yacht Club is, uh, you know, much farther, mm -hmm. but Grand Destino is, is pretty close to that. Um, so I think that, that's the benefit of staying at Grand Destino. Of course, 
The Grand Floridian is no slouch. Mm-hmm. Some of the best restaurants in Walt Disney World, again, the flagship resort. I'm betting, and I haven't heard anything on this, but I'm betting mm-hmm. that the NBA players will get their own building at the Grand Floridian, don't you think? Yeah, and actually what I've been hearing is close to the convention center. I mean, like Exactly. Re- yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think like Sugarloaf, mm-hmm. that building yeah. is a short walk to the convention center. And it's you can isolate it's it's club level, mm-hmm. and you can isolate the entire building if you need to. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the uh, the convention center, Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things about all three of these resorts is if you go on to uh, to the Disney conventions website, mm-hmm. you'll see that each of them has enough convention space to hold multiple NBA courts, and the ceilings in those convention rooms are tall enough, anywhere from 22 to 25 feet at least, mm-hmm. so that you could actually shoot a basketball if you needed to in that space. Okay. And the reason for that is there's at least six courts at, at wide world sports that could be you know configured, but these teams are going to want to practice in private, Yeah, yep. and you'll be able to lock down those conference rooms so that other people aren't, don't see what you're doing. Okay. It looks like a plan is, is being pulled together, but the Yacht Club, what are we thinking ah. Yeah. All right. So uh, you know how Yacht Club is uh, has Stormalong Bay, the best pool complex mm-hmm. in Walt Disney World, but that's closed to guests who are staying at Beach Club mm-hmm. Villas. They're getting the quiet pool. So my, my sense is, my guess is mm-hmm. that the appeal of Yacht Club or the pitch to the NBA was you could have the best pool in Walt Disney World while you're staying there. So you've got convention space. You've got a great pool. Mm-hmm. You want to run around. You want to do some exercising. It's got its, it's got its own gym. But if you wanted to run around, Crescent Lake in the morning and do some uh, cardio training. Mm-hmm. You could do that there. So I think that's that's it there. Okay. So every every tier got something mm-hmm. that's the best, mm-hmm. right? Best bathrooms, best dining, mm-hmm. best pool. Every team can say they got something. I also heard that the uh, Disney's bringing in special beds. <laughs> for, well, it's part of the uh, it's it's actually part of the NBA collective bargaining agreement mm-hmm. that the players stay at luxury hotels and that they've got beds that accommodate tall people. Okay, and when do you think these are showing up on eBay? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I'm saying is if you work for Disney, check out Cast Connections at the end of July. There you go. <laughs> in August, you might, uh, might might find some deals on some like uh, California King kids. Bed. That's it, exactly. It's exactly, gonna, exactly. Know. So uh, like I said, uh, we're, uh, we're awaiting word uh, from Disney on some other announcements later on today. If that uh, happens, Jim, you and I will record a mm-hmm. quick special podcast on that. Okay. All right, Jim, on to listener questions. Remember last week's show, we asked people to come up with suggestions for re-theming Splash Mountain. And boy, did we get some good suggestions. Let's go through them, all right? Okay. Our first one was from Jace, who suggested Robin Hood. Because A, the live action movie is coming out. And you can do uh, both songs and characters that are similar to Splash Mountain. So you could begin the ride with Odalali from uh, the Robin Hood movie. And to end with zippity doo because Jay says you have to keep that song in the ride. Also, you can uh, easily reskin Br'er Fox to Robin Hood and Br'er Bear to Little John, which saves money. So my uh, Jim, I wrote to Jason, I was like, did you feel a sudden upswelling of great joy somewhere in a finance department in Burbank as you wrote this? Because the direct reskinning thing, like Fox to Robin Hood, Bear to Little John, has to make Disney accountants weep with joy at this point, don't you think? The original edition of Art of Walt Disney, the Abrams book that came out in the mid-70s, they did this tremendous chunk about how 
when they were originally proposing doing Robin Hood, they mm-hmm. set the film in the South. The idea was, let's do an American version of Robin Hood, because we'd already done a live-action version that was set in merry old England, and they spent about six months working on, you know, just setting it, the Robin Hood story in the bayou and the, that sort of thing. So even from hmm. a Disney history point of view, this works. He's certainly not wrong about the live-action film coming out, Disney Plus fast-track project for them. So, yeah, this this one works, you know, from and again, from a finance and a marketing point of view. So Plus there's history, like you said. I mean, yeah. they could, I mean, it would appeal to theme park fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then fans of the movie, uh, Robin Hood is actually Laurel's favorite Disney animated film. So. Is it really? She's Some that- support here in the Testa household for that. Yeah. Wow, big Peter Ustinov fan. Okay, I get that. All right. <laughs> the other suggestions Jace had were mm-hmm. DuckTales, mm-hmm. uh, which appeals to people who grew up in the 80s and the, the, the fans of the new show. Mm-hmm. And then Jungle Book. Also good. All right, so uh, Jason writes in uh, with another idea, and his idea, Jim, mm-hmm. was Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jason writes in that uh, he's sure that they need to go with an original plot uh, with a Disneyland ride, but something similar where you're helping Indy escape a villain, mm-hmm. and the flume is the only possible way out. They could tie it in to the new film, and Indiana Jones as a franchise is timeless enough. Jim, you can almost hear the keyboards of Hollywood scriptwriters furiously editing the upcoming okay. Indiana Jones script is right there. You can, it's like it's like this. Two for two. These are solid. Indiana Jones in a in a western mm-hmm. I mean you could it could easily be Morocco, right? When we're saying it's Frontierland, I guess it needs to be the American West. Okay, so it needs to be the American West. It can't be like Morocco. Remember the opening of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where you had young Indy in right, right. Monument yeah, Valley. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there sure. Go. There we go. This fits. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, third suggestion is from Tim, and this one's a little bit out there, but mm-hmm. it starts a little out there, but but I think he's developed this really well. So Tim is suggesting, what about a tangled layover centered around a secret tunnel from the ugly duckling and the water dam explosion sequence of the movie? It could be thematically tied into the tangled restrooms, either by a winding path for the queue behind the restrooms in Rivers of America or in a, uh, additional hidden Pascals through Frontierland to imply the path of Rapunzel leading to the ride building. Riders would board in a forest environment, traveling through more of the woods, the ugly duckling tavern, the secret tunnel scene in the movie, culminating in a drop with a huge dam break in the movie, with AA figures of Flynn, Rapunzel, Mother Gothel, and the Stabbington brothers in pursuit the whole way. The riverboat scene of the ride could be replaced by an I See the Light floating lantern scene with Rapunzel and Flynn in a boat alongside the guests. What do you think? Any ride that uses the term Stabbington Brothers, I'm Stabbington on board. Brothers, exactly. I, I'm on board with. <laughs> you know, no, I mean, these are all people who are thinking like the modern Walt Disney Company. It's like, look, what's the new IP? What sells dolls? These are all good and solid. It just, the challenge now is, is Disney actually going to bite? Is a Disney actually going to do something with, with Splash Mountain? So uh, Tim uh, adds that uh, the facade of the attraction could be similar in Rockwork to Big Thunder to maintain the land's identity, mm-hmm. but the logs could be kept or given new, quote, woodwork inspired by Rapunzel's hair. Mm, okay. Yeah. Tim's put a lot of thought into this. Uh, I like it. These are all good suggestions. Yeah, I agree. Fantastic job, folks. All right. Uh, and speaking of movies, don't forget, uh, well, uh, we have a virtual movie night every Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. The movies related to a Disney or Universal theme park ride. Log on to the chat feature at touringplans.com or on Twitter. Use the hashtag Liner Movie Night. We'll make goofy comments about the movie as it plays. And be sure to follow Touring Plans on Twitter to vote for each week's film. All right, Jim, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, you're going to tell us about the history of Aunt Jemima in Disneyland. 
So folks, get out your maple syrup and we'll, uh, we'll be ready to talk in a second. We've all heard a lot of stuff about uh, retheming of various brands and attractions mm -hmm. and so on lately to make them uh, less offensive. Mm -hmm. And you have a great story about Aunt Jemima because she's in the news as well. Yeah. It's, it's honestly been a fascinating 24 hours where we saw a Quaker Road step up and, you know, that's like we're going to try to, you know, make some progress in regard to racial equality. So, you know, it's time to rebrand and rename Aunt Jemima. But right behind that, uh, the folks who can do Uncle Ben's and Cream of Wheat and Mrs. Butterworth also stepped up to the plate and said, you know, they're going to rebrand and rename. And the thing about Aunt Jemima is Disney, especially Disneyland and Aunt Jemima, at least for the first 15 years or so that the park was open, they were linked. In fact, there's a television ad from 1956. It starts with the castle at Disneyland. And then they talk about these party pancakes that were invented at the Aunt Jemima Pancake House restaurant at Disneyland that you can now make at home by using chocolate milk or strawberry milk or eggnog, which I'm not having eggnog for breakfast. If you're looking for it on uh, YouTube, it's Aunt Jemima Disneyland commercial 1956. Yeah, yeah. Oof. If we go back to the history of the park, Walt just didn't have the money to make Disneyland. So he was accepting sponsorship deals that if you showed up at the park and you sort of fit the theme, it's like, okay, we can make a deal. And in this case, Quaker Oats came through the door and said, hey, we'd love to be part of Disneyland. But in return for that, we would like to have an Aunt Jemima Pancake House restaurant inside the park. That was largely because they maintained Aunt Jemima as a living trademark. I mean, as far back as 1893, Len, at the mm -hmm. Columbian Exposition, they had a, a woman. Her name was Nancy Green. I mean, the brand was only three years old at this point, but Nancy Green dressed up in the kerchief and the apron. She was an actress storyteller, and she sat in the booth all day and cooked pancakes and told stories about the Old South and how you really wanted to buy this pancake mix, which was among the very first ready mix brands. All you needed to do was pour in a cup of milk and you could make these fluffy pancakes. Right. So uh, this was back when prepackaged foods mm -hmm. were just coming out in the United States. That's it, exactly. Right, so Okay, all right. And the fact that she stood there and made these in front of them, handed them to the guy. I mean, Aunt Jemima walked away, or the brand, from the, uh, this was actually the Chicago's World Fair, uh, you know, walked away, a huge success. And we jump ahead to 1926, and here's uh, Quaker Oats, which actually buys the entire company that makes Aunt Jemima, and then folds it in as one of their brands, and they lean heavily into this idea of a living trademark. In fact, first thing they do, uh, they go after an actual physical trademark on Aunt Jemima, and then they set up, basically, they break the country down into regions, and they okay. set up, uh, you know, an African-American performer in each of these regions who is the designated Aunt Jemima. And she, you know, she does cooking demos at uh, department stores. She does in-store appearances at grocery stores. She judges pancake cooking contests. And in addition to that, they actually have a woman, uh, her name was Ethel Ernestine Harper, who was the national Aunt Jemima. 
I would want my pancakes made by someone named Ethel. I just think just based on the name, she would do a good job. I don't know how actually secretive you can be about making pancakes, Len, but, but Quaker Oats takes this very, very seriously. Do they? The ads of the period talk about what's great about Aunt Jemima is they mix four flours and they mix wheat, rice, and corn, and some other flour that's a corporate secret. And it's like, how many other flours are there, Len? <laughs> It's not, not potato or something like that. or yeah. But anyway, so this is a company that has already established that they're in the Aunt Jemima business as a physical person. And so that's their condition to go into Disneyland. It's like, we'll give you money to help build a park, but it's got to have a Aunt Jemima uh, pancake restaurant. And it's got to have a live performer in the park to greet guests and to pose for pictures and generally act like the hostess of the restaurant. And okay. money's tight. And so Walt agrees to this. In fact, if you watch the Dateline Disneyland, that 90-minute long special they aired on ABC in July 55 when you know, the park opened, if you start watching at the 39-minute mark, who comes dancing on screen but Aunt Jemima? Wow, that's some product placement. In the middle of this production number, the voiceover narrator and goes, and that's Aunt Jemima. <laughs> wow. You'd have to assume that Walt, who was very much in the school of thought, like, let's entertain and then promote, might have been offended by this, might have, you know, felt like I'm, you know, I needed the money to build my part, but this is really ramming it down my throat. All right, because didn't, because he, he had started buying out. Once Disneyland, Disneyland was a hit, he started buying out the people who had given him money to build it, right? That's it, exactly. To, to take over. Okay, and in right. fact, they do that with Quaker Oats in the mid-60s. But the restaurant is so popular that they deliberately keep them on board as a sponsor. Disney takes over day-to-day -day operations. Oh, okay. And also, they don't get rid of Aunt Jemima. And, and there's a reason for that. The woman – actually, there were two women in the park who played Aunt Jemima. There was an, a woman called Eileen Lewis – and then mm -hmm. there was a, she was the primary Aunt Jemima. And on the days that she didn't come into work, there was another African-American performer called Palmer Jackson. But anyway, Walt, the way he always started his Saturdays and his Sundays was that he got up and he then walked over to Frontierland and he had breakfast over at okay. uh, Aunt Jemima's. And Aileen would come out, pour Walt a coffee, and then sit down with him, and then Walt would spend breakfast pumping Aileen for information because you know, she'd been in the park all week. And they offered this ridiculous discounted breakfast for Disney cast members at the Aunt Jemima uh, Pancake House. Uh, for 25 cents, you get eggs, bacon, pancakes, and coffee. So everyone came there and everybody wow. talked about every part of the, you know, what was going on in the park. So Walt would come in and basically get intel about, all right, what went on this week? What happened? And, you know, it's, and, it's, it's cheaper than bugging all the tables, Jim. Yeah, That's what I'm going yeah. with. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so she was an opening day employee. And as, as time went on, Walt really came to care for Elite. In fact, to the point he would contact Quaker Oats and it's like, she is doing an amazing job. She is such a great ambassador for the brand. And the company, at Walt's insistence, came out in August of 1960 and presented her with this plaque and this, this elaborate ceremony to the effect of, you know, that she was this wonderful Disneylander, that she, you know, was doing such a good job for the park and she was doing such a good job for the brand. But at the same time, here are these Quaker Road's executives who were standing in the park in the middle of the day and there's a line mm -hmm. out the door at 
this now they've they've changed the name of the restaurant in '57 to Aunt Jemima's Kitchen. Okay. And they also changed the menu up a little bit so they have dinner and uh, lunch offerings. Oh, okay. So this is like a McDonald's doing breakfast every day. Okay. There you go. And it's just one of these things where it's like, look at the money that you know he's making here. We should do something with this. And what Quaker Oats decides to do is launch a national chain of Aunt Jemima restaurants. Really? There was a set of, there was an Aunt Jemima chain of restaurants? At the Heightland, there were 21 of them. There was one in Canada, there was one in Bristol, England, but there were seven in New York State. There were three in Illinois, two each in Florida and Ohio. And, and at that point, there were plans to expand the chain out to 18 other states. And huh. the way they describe it, the interior is supposed to replicate a genteel, relaxed feel of a southern plantation. And not only that, but you're greeted at the door by an African-American employee who's dressed as Aunt Jemima. Who, who's what, what year is this, Jim? This is 62, 63, Len. So five or six years after Brown versus Board of Education? And, uh, well, not only that, but, um, <laughs> okay. but you right. know, I mean, 60, think about it. 63, that's when George Wallace is in the doorway at the University of Alabama. Right. You know, the March on Washington, the bombing of the church in Birmingham. I mean, it's it's kind of... The exact wrong time to be doing an old Southern plantation. Yeah, theme. if there was a, if there was ever a time that uh, that this would be socially acceptable, the early '60s is not it. No, no, and and, and the the weird thing is that Quaker Oats is, is is shocked, shocked that you know there are people outside protesting, especially you know with the thought that you're making you're forcing an employee to wear an Aunt Jemima outfit. It's demeaning, right? But Disney executives are looking over the berm, paying attention to what's going on in the rest of the world, and it's like, this is probably the time to start stripping any references to the Old South out of, off of the menus and the promotional stuff that's used for... Oh, so they were doing this in the 60s. Yeah. All right. So okay. listen to the... This is how they... An example of the stuff that was still being used in the 60s in regard to Disneyland's Aunt Jemima Kitchen. It's like... When she's not lending a hand at pancake festivals around the country, Aunt Jemima is at home, and at home is in quotes, Len, at Aunt Jemima's kitchen at Disneyland. In a gracious Old South setting, she welcomes you, serves her famous pancakes, and then sends you on your way with a cheery, y'all come back. Yeah. <laughs> even if it, even if we were talking about African Americans in the South, yeah. the stereotype of Southerners sending you on your way with a y'all come back is... Yeah. Pretty stereotypical. All right. Very much so. And and when they renamed the restaurant from Aunt Jemima's Pancake House, they changed it into a full menu and that sort of thing uh, in August of 57. Original name of the restaurant, Len, was Aunt Jemima's Old South Kitchen, which yeah. lasted okay. a, about a year. There was talk during this period, you know, especially given what was going on with the Aunt Jemima kitchens out in the country. And in fact, a lot of them were located on travel plazas. This was when the the U.S. highway system was exploding. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing. You'd, you'd pull off the highway and there was the faux plantation, complete with the gone with the wind columns. But again, getting back to Disneyland, there was talk during this period of getting rid of Aileen Lewis and Palmyra Jackson, getting rid of the in-park Aunt Jemima's. But Walt wouldn't allow it because of how he felt personally about Aileen. You know, just that, that he thought of her as a friend. It was part of his Saturday and Sunday morning routine, was sitting down with her and just you know, shooting the breeze about what was going on at the parks. But 
then Walt dies in December of 66, and Disney then buys out Quaker Oats sponsorship in 1967. And in a weird sort of way, this actually gave Aileen and, and Palmera job security, because if, if Quaker Oats was still calling the shots in 67 and they were eliminating the hostess dressed as Aunt Jemima position and all of their... Right. Like, it just it would have made sense during the same period where it's like, okay, we're doing that in the outside world, we'll, we'll get rid of them in the park. But now it was Disney calling the shots as to how the uh, in-park Aunt Jemima's kitchen operated. And there was this weird period of mourning within the company where it's just sort of the, the whole what would Walt do culture kind of grew up during this era. Got it. For three years, they do nothing. But finally, in early 1970s, Aileen and Palmer get called into an office and say, look, nothing personal, ladies, you do a wonderful job, but times have changed and we have to let you go. To make a clean break, they actually, in 1970, shut down the, the Achimaima Kitchen restaurant and reopen it as the Magnolia Tree Terrace. And even then, you know, there are people at, you know, so let me get this straight. You want to make break, a break from the Old South and you call it Magnolia Tree Terrace. Magnolia Tree Terrace, yeah. It's like, okay, let's try again. And so in 1971, that's when it gets the name that we know today, the Riverbell Terrace. Oh, okay. And in the same window of time, the Achimaima kitchens around the country uh, you know, close up and fade from memory. But it's worth noting that in the exact same period of time that Disney shut down Aunt Jemima's kitchen at Disneyland, there was a story published in Variety. It was published February 23rd, 1970. The headline is, Song of the South Muted, Disney mm -hmm. Shelves Big Coin Film. And basically what the story is at that point, it's written by a gentleman, Ron Wise, that even though exhibitors are clamoring at this point for this Academy Award-winning film, Song of the South hasn't been out in theaters at this point for 14 years. Okay. Disney has made, you know, as they described, the very difficult decision to permanently retire this motion picture. The plan was to collect all available prints of Song of the South and then place them in the Disney vault with the, the idea that the movie would... <laughs> Wait, by place them in the vault, do they mean bury them in concrete in the ocean? Because <laughs> is that... I'm not, I'm not big on corporate euphemisms. Is that what that, mean? what that means? I... I keep trying to get to the actual physical Disney vault. First of all, I want to what? see if it has the mouse ears. Exactly. Like, what, what guards the Disney vault? Could you imagine I don't the know. stuff that's in there? Oh, my God. I've chatted with friends who've worked on film restorations. And, you know, like, for example, there's been this ongoing project about trying to get bed knobs and broomsticks back to what it was when it was released to theaters in the 71s. And there were a lot of cuts made to that and a lot of footage has gone missing. And the thing is that they go through the vault hoping that they, you know, someone will have mislabeled a film can. And these are physical film cans, Len. These are big, heavy oh. assets as opposed to stuff that's been digitized. And so again, here's Disney announcing in February of 1970 uh, that Song of the South is going into the vault and with the idea that this movie would never be screened in its entirety publicly ever again. 22 months later, Len, Song of the South is back in theaters. What? How... Okay. <laughs> so forever uh, is somewhere somewhere slightly less than two years? Yeah. How do they release it in the 
early 1970s after all the civil rights stuff? What is the... Well, first of all, you know, you have a poster that doesn't necessarily put uh, Uncle Remus front and center. And you stress a lot of the music. You put the animated characters in, in the foreground. And the way I've also heard that Disney justified this, Len, was that Walt Disney World had opened in October of 1971. There's that, that famous story about Royo Disney going over the books, and it's like, how much did we spend? Yeah. It was announced as a $100 million project, and what they'll admit to is that it cost $400 million to make. Sure. And supposedly it was like, we got to recover this money. And it's like, well, what do the exhibitors want? Well, they want Song of the South. Give them Song of the South. So 22 months of it will absolutely never come out of the... Vo- hey, Walt Disney won't ran over a budget. Bring out Song of the South. God. <laughs> that is the story of, of Aunt Jemima's. And, and I mean, for years, nothing happens. And, and again, the Aunt Jemima brand in this form existed for 131 years. Right. And just last week, NASCAR, you know, was like, okay, no more com- Confederate flags. And, you know, what's going on with, the, you know, the statues around the country. And now this. Yeah. I mean, if you would have told me, if you would have told me last year, well, okay. If you would have told me anything about 2020 last year, I would have been like, that sounds crazy. Right. Yeah. But among, among the things that would have been less, less believable to me would be Dale Earnhardt from NASCAR, Dale Earnhardt Jr. from NASCAR saying, you know what, the Confederate flag doesn't have a place in uh, racetracks. Mm -hmm. That would have been, I don't know if I would have said the government acknowledging the existence of aliens or the Dale Earnhardt thing would have been more surprising to me. (laughs) And I'm not joking about the aliens, right? Remember, the the government basically came out in in April and said, yeah, they're real, right? And and no one is talking about this. Oh, by the way. This is only June, Len. I know. It's only June. Yeah. I'm waiting for the Death Star to start orbiting soon. Yeah. I think that's July. Who knows? Or for that matter, people, you know, water skiing at Loch Ness being pulled by the monster. You know, I, I saw just- that. I saw that. <laughs> Whatever happened? Remember when murder hornets were a thing? Yeah. Were gonna- <laughs> Remember when that was the thing we had to worry about? Those were the days, Jim. Those were the days. <laughs> God. You go back yeah. to a simpler time. <laughs> Uh, well, it, you know, that reminds me, there was this great sign at a, a, a local business, uh, you know, to the effect of you're interested in time, time travel, be here last Wednesday at seven o'clock. So, you know, that's the thing. <laughs> Let's all go back to a simpler time. So That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's regular show... Disney World's resorts open up. I will be there. And we also finish up that story of rogue weddings in Disney parks. I promise. Mm -hmm. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's aging a secret blend of Jimmy Red Corn Mash for the upcoming Kentucky Bourbon Festival, October 15th through the 18th, 2020, in beautiful downtown Bardstown, Kentucky. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.